You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Professor Edgar teaches modern Russian and Central Asian history at um, University of California, Santa Barbara. She received her PhD in history from UC Berkeley and a master's in international affairs and Middle Eastern studies from Columbia. Uh, Professor's first book, which uh, I'm sure many of you are familiar with, uh, was called Tribal Nation, The Making of Soviet Turkmenistan, and it came out with Princeton in 2004. It's a truly groundbreaking work of Soviet and Central Asian history and really was one of the first books to, um, or, or just works in general, right, to examine the making of the Soviet Union from a non-Russian perspective. And it remains um, extremely important on, on many syllabi, including my own. So um, her most recent book, which she'll talk about today, is called Intermarriage and the Friendship of Peoples, Ethnic Mixing in Soviet Central Asia. Um, it came out last year with Cornell, and it too is a tremendous work of scholarship. It makes important arguments about the racialization of nationality in the late Soviet Union and about the politics of gender and the politics of the family. Um, and what I think is just truly amazing, and we got to speak with, with um, Professor Edgar earlier about this today, is that it's based on more than 80 in-depth oral history interviews in Kazakhstan and Tajikistan. So just the, the research that was undertaken to do this book is just, um, it's incredible. So um, I'm so glad that she's here to talk with us about her book and about her research. And let's give her a warm Krika welcome. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for coming. Can you all hear me okay? Yes. All right. I'm so happy to be here, not just because it's great to see Fran and Joey and various other old friends. It's nice to be here again. I gave a talk here once, probably about 10 years ago, um, and in this very room. <laughs> and, uh, and I just want to say that when people come from California, you do not have to apologize for them if it's raining. <laughs> because we like rain. We never get rain. So when it rains, it's kind of exciting for us. So it's sort of something new. You get to actually wear the raincoat that you know don't wear very often. So anyway, it's wonderful to be here. Um, the title of my talk, as Fran said, is Intermarriage and the Friendship of Peoples. So I'm going to set my timer so I don't talk too long. Uh, gonna work. Sorry. Never mind. I won't set the timer. I'll watch the clock. <laughs> the title is Intermarriage and the Friendship of People. Some of you are not specialists in Soviet, Soviet studies. You may wonder what is the friendship of peoples? What an odd title. Well, in fact, this was a Soviet era slogan that reflected the way the Soviet state officially conceptualized its multi-ethnic population. You can kind of see a visual representation of that on this slide. The more than 100 peoples making up the Soviet Union were supposedly united through the friendship of peoples that prevailed throughout Communist Party rule. Um, the Soviet Union, in other words, presented itself as a paradise of ethnic and racial harmony. And you can see, again, even kids were also portrayed as here are all the different Soviet nationalities uh, in friendship. Um, during the Cold War, Soviet Communist Party leaders frequently contrasted the U.S. legacy of segregation and discrimination with the Soviet commitment to ethnic and national equality. As evidence of the genuine friendship of peoples in the Soviet Union, they pointed to the high rates or supposedly high rates of intermarriage among Soviet citizens of different ethnic and national backgrounds, noting that su such marriages were actually banned in many U.S. states at the time, which they were. Mixed marriages were also seen as a sign that the many Soviet nationalities were on their way to merging into a single Soviet people. Soviet people was another kind of common phrase that you heard in Soviet Union. Um, now, since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, as you probably know, much of post-Soviet Eurasia has moved away from ethnic and racial tolerance. Rising opposition to mixed marriage has taken place in many Soviet successor states, and that's just a small part of this transformation. The region has experienced numerous ethnic conflicts, which I'm sure you have heard about, as well as a rise in xenophobic nationalism and racism. And of course, the most egregious example of such conflict is uh, the recent Russian invasion of Ukraine, where the Russian state has justified brutality and violence with dehumanizing rhetoric that dismisses and denies Ukrainian identity and history. 
Today, people of mixed ethnic background in many former Soviet republics find themselves torn between their different identities. I, you can only imagine what this must be like for people of mixed Russian-Ukrainian uh, heritage, but it's also true for people, uh, I can imagine, of mixed Armenian and Azerbaijani heritage. <laughs> Believe it or not, there are there are some of those, and uh, uh, and many other you know mixed combinations too. Uh, these people find themselves torn between different parts of their family and uh, forced to take sides in many cases. You know, they see the politicization of their identities. So how did we get from there to here, from Soviet internationalism and the friendship of peoples to inter-ethnic hatred and war? My book, Intermarriage and the Friendship of Peoples, um, tries to offer a partial explanation, a partial answer to this question, by looking at the rise of racial thinking in the late Soviet period through the lens of intermarriage. Um, because even as the Soviet Union was celebrating mixed marriages among its diverse ethnic groups, oh, I put up the title here, there's the book, yeah, my book. <laughs> so, even as the Soviet Union was celebrating mixed marriages among its peoples, the understanding of nationality in late Soviet decades was undergoing a change. It was becoming increasingly primordial, to use sort of a scholarly word, increasingly biological, incre in increasingly racial, I would argue. Um, now, before I go on for the non-experts among us, I should explain that the Soviets used nationality in a way that we, they used it to mean something that we would probably in the United States um, describe as, we probably use the word ethnicity. So when they, so when they talked about nationalities, they were not talking. They were not talking about people's citizenship. They were talking. Uh, you know, a nationality in the Soviet Union was kind of a, an officially defined ethnic group, as you know. Your professor uh, Hirsch has so ably described in her book, Empire of Nations. <clears throat> nationality in Soviet parlance um, uh, uh, didn't refer to citizenship, as I've said. Soviet was not a nationality. Nationalities were Russians, Ukrainians, Armenians. Uzbeks, Tatars, Estonians, these were the groups that made up the building blocks of the Soviet Union. <clears throat> they were referred to as nationalities. Now, nationality was viewed as a unique and immutable attribute of every Soviet citizen. All citizens, even those who were of mixed nationality, were required to have a <clears throat> single nationality inscribed in their identity document, their internal passport, which is a very important part of this story. Because if you're mixed, how do you pick one? <laughs> so that's one question. Um, uh, uh, and um, uh, nationality was such an important attribute that you know people were often viewed and defined in terms of their nationality in the sense that ethnic stereotyping was widespread. So for example, in these oral history interviews that I conducted that Fran mentioned, people would often engage in kind of casual ethnic stereotyping in a way that we would sort of cringe at here, but uh, would say things like, well, you know, Russians are all, you know, alcoholics, uh, Kazakhs are very conservative and tradition bound, Azerbaijanis are extremely and pathologically jealous, Armenians are good at making money. People would say stuff like this to me all the time, you know, when trying to explain, you know, inter-ethnic relations in the Soviet Union. So on the one hand, you have, you know, a belief in uh, internationalism, friendship of peoples, a belief that all the nationalities are going to merge into a single Soviet people. And on the other hand, you have kind of, um, you know, an obsession with nationality, with, you know, and with people's individual nationalities. It reflects a fundamental tension within the Soviet multinational state that other scholars, I'm not the first to note this, uh, which is that the Communist Party sought to create a single Soviet people while at, the, while at the same time, individual nationalities or ethnicities were becoming increasingly entrenched. Uh, within, uh, often within their own ethnic territories. So in my book and in my talk today, I discuss changing views of nationality and intermarriage through two different angles. First, I'll talk about changing scholarly and official views of nationality, how Soviet social scientists and officials saw intermarriage and nationality. Uh, and second, I will focus using mostly data drawn from my oral history interviews on the lived experiences of mixed families, uh, both couples, mixed couples, as well as their adult children whom I interviewed, um, and the impact of changing conceptions of nationality and identity on their lives. At the end of my talk, I'll bring these two strands together to talk a little bit about how these evolving views of nationality have played out in the post-Soviet period and how they're affecting mixed families in the post-Soviet period. Okay, so let me say a few words about my research methods and where I did my research. 
My book's conclusions are based to a large extent on oral history interviews with members of mixed families in Kazakhstan and Tajikistan, but also I did interviews with Soviet social scientists, in uh, mainly in Moscow and St. Petersburg. I used a lot of published and unpublished Soviet documents from archives and elsewhere, scholarly and popular articles from the Soviet press, memoirs and films in order to capture kind of popular conceptions of mixed marriage. Um, these are the kinds of sources that I use. Huh? <laughs> Is that okay for everybody? Good, okay. It's fine with me, I can still see my, my notes. Okay, good. Um, so uh, I chose Kazakhstan and Tajikistan, which you can see, does this have a laser thing on the yeah, other side? Let's see. Oh, but that was not it. Okay, there we go. Okay, here's Kazakhstan, Kazakh SSR, Soviet Socialist Republic. And down here is Tajikistan. Uh, so these are two Central Asian republics, which I chose as the primary venues for my research, for my interviews. Uh, because they represent opposing poles on the spectrum of Soviet and post-Soviet nationality thinking. Kazakhstan, with its extremely diverse population and high rates of ethnic inter-ethnic interaction, um, offered fertile ground for ethnic mixing and continues to do so in the post-Soviet period. While Tajikistan was more socially conservative, um, uh, a little more ethnically homogeneous, uh, and offered a somewhat less welcoming environment for mixed marriages in the Soviet period, and is even less receptive to such ethnic mixing today. Now, I first became convinced of the importance of this topic. Well, I first encountered it when I was doing research for my book on Turkmenistan, a uh, tribal nation, because I found uh, Turkmen communists talking about um, mixed marriage, you know, in the in Turkmen language newspapers, talking about whether it was okay to marry Russian women or was that going to dilute their culture. I thought, huh, that's kind of an interesting topic. I filed it away, saved it for later. Then some years later, I was reading um, ethnographic and uh, social and uh, sociological journals from the late Soviet period, just for fun. And I happened to notice <laughs> the strange things we historians do. <laughs> and I had I light summer reading one summer. And I happened to notice that there were a huge number of articles about intermarriage. Every single issue was like intermarriage in Soviet Karelia, intermarriage in Soviet Kyrgyzstan, you know, data on intermarriage, identities of intermarried youth of intermarried couples. I was like, huh, why are they so interested in this? So I started looking into it a little bit. And in fact, in especially in the late Soviet period, from the 60s to the 80s, basically, uh, from the 60s to the collapse of the Soviet Union, actually, um, Soviet social scientists seemed to be really kind of obsessed with intermarriage. Every book on nationalities had to have a chapter on intermarriage. Every journal that dealt in any way with nationalities or Soviet society, they always had something on intermarriage. So I thought, why? You know, why was this? <laughs> Um, why was this so important? Now, the timing of this discourse, the fact that you saw it, you know, in the 60s, 80s, at first, I thought, well, you know, well, is this a, a Cold War artifact? Is this part of Cold War competition? Because they're trying to point out how liberal they are on intermarriage. But then I remember, no, actually, they were talking about it already in the 1920s. So doing a little research, what I discovered was that, in fact, Soviet support for intermarriage predated the Cold War. It went all the way back. Uh, you know, to, through virtually the entire Soviet period. However, it was talked about differently in different time periods. And whenever nationality and race became a major focus of obsession among Soviet scholars, intermarriage tended to be a topic of conversation as well. So there were really two periods when ethnic and racial mixing became a particular focus of intense interest in the Soviet Union. The first was in the 20s and early 30s. Um, when, and again, this is something Francine Hirsch is a pioneer in writing about, uh, when um, uh, Soviet anthropologists or ethnographers sought to create new Soviet approaches to human difference, um, and uh, at first they engaged with, and then ultimately they rejected Western paradigms of race and eugenics. Um, the second period when uh, intermarriage as well as race and nationality were talked about a lot was, uh, began in the early 60s. Say more about that in a moment, but in between these two periods, there was a long period from the 1930s to 1950s where this wasn't talked about very much because uh, it became uh, taboo to uh, really talk about any role for bi of biology in human communities. You know, uh, um, human, uh, human groups were supposed to be just based on culture and history, not on biology. I remember reading uh, one scholar accused another of vulgar zoologism. Maybe that was in your book, Fran. I can't remember for for talking about biological. Oh, it's not not our not our generation. Yeah, the scholars in the thirties. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway, so this period from the thirties to fifties, really kind of most of the Stalinist period, 
um, there wasn't a lot of talk about ethnic and racial differences and so forth, and there was less talk about intermarriage. However, in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the early 60s, this topic came back with a vengeance. Um, uh, a recurrent theme in these discussions was the role, the relationship between um, the, and the interplay of biological and the social in the making of ethnic communities. And Soviet scholars often seem to be struggling with this issue, especially you know, in the, in the, la in the la late Soviet decades. Is the ethnic group or nationality a biological organism, a cultural and historical entity, or both? Is ethnic mixing primarily a biogenetic process or a cultural process? Now, until recently, Western historians tended to accept at face value, Soviet claims about the absence of race and racial thinking in the Soviet Union. And in fact, in the, you know, in, in, you know, in the early Soviet period and you know, the Leninist view, nationalities were cultural and historical entities. They were not kind of biological. Uh, they were not linked by common roots or descent or blood. They were not supposed to be. Um, and in fact, Soviet scholars, uh, you know, in, in this period, talked favorably about ethnic mixing and said that, you know, and, and wrote that it is not a negative thing, as, for example, Nazi scholars were beginning to, to, to write at this time. So by the mid-1930s, uh, there wasn't, there, there was already a positive, you know, a positive view of, uh, of intermarriage and ethnic mixing. Um, but uh, so then in this later period, after a period of not talking about this very much in this later period, the positive Attitude toward intermarriage began being expressed again. These were all these articles I found in these in these journals. But at the same time, you had this increasingly primordial understanding of nationality. This was there was the revival of the discipline of genetics, which had been banned under Stalin, as many of you will know. And this led to renewed discussion of human communities as biological and not just social and historical entities. Um, an important development here was that Soviet social scientists adopted the term ethnos to uh, talk about human communities that ostensibly maintained their identities over centuries or even millennia. Um, and uh, uh, this man, sorry. Um, yes, Julian Bromley, who was the director of the Institute of Ethnography and Anthropology in Moscow. Uh, he was kind of a, a, you know, a, a main theorist of the theory of ethnos. And with this theory of ethnos, ethnic characteristics came to be seen increasingly as genetically determined and immutable. Now, Bromley himself always stressed that, well, usually stressed that <laughs> the ethnos was a historical construct. You know, he didn't want to be accused of vulgar zoologism, but uh, even he wavered on the nature of the ethnos. He sometimes said that it was a genetic population in addition to being a historical and cultural identity. Ultimately, he compromised at one point by saying the ethnos was biosocial, you know, whatever that means. Uh, Bromley <laughs> was also very interested in intermarriage. From the 60s to the 80s, um, he wrote frequently about intermarriage. He encouraged other ethnologists, ethnographers, anthropologists to write about it. And part this was part of a kind of general trend in Soviet anthropology in this period of writing about what Bromley called ethnic processes. So ethnic processes, you constantly saw this word in, you know, in these journals. Uh, some of them were toward fragmentation, and some were toward consolidation or convergence, you know, drawing together. And Bromley believed that in modern, you know, in the modern socialist Soviet Union, tendencies toward convergence or drawing together, ethnic processes of consolidation were what were happening, and that intermarriage was going to play, was playing an important role in the drawing together of different Soviet nationalities, which would ultimately result in the emergence of a single Soviet people. So this was kind of an important ideological framework, you know, in this period, and that's why they were writing about it so much. Now, interestingly, Bromley viewed, he, he wrote favorably about ethnic intermarriage. He viewed it um, as a progressive force in Soviet society that was eventually going to uh, you know, lead to um, merging of Soviet peoples into a single people. And yet, his quasi-biological view of the ethnos hinted at a covert racialization of the discourse and practice of nationality in the final decades of the Soviet Union. So how were these shifting and contradictory ideas about nationality and intermarriage reflected in the language perceptions and experiences of actual mixed families. So the next thing I want to turn to, um, 
It's important to note, first of all, that the officially positive attitude toward intermarriage was a boon for mixed couples and families. Most people I interviewed said that they felt comfortable in the Soviet Union. You know, they did not feel stigmatized. I mean, most of you know that a mixed family in the United States throughout, you know, most of the 20th century would have been stigmatized and, you know, shunned and, you know, and so forth, uh, if not outright, you know, not allowed legally to marry. But in the Soviet Union, these families, you know, felt for the most part, you know, comfortable, at least, you know, kind of like they were welcomed, they were treated in some ways, in some, they were treated as the vanguard of internationalist society. Some of my people I interviewed told me that they'd been invited to stand up in class and told, you know, this girl is this is a true Soviet citizen. She's a, from a mixed marriage, which of course is a little embarrassing if it's you that it happens to, but the thought was nice. Um, so the Soviet state and broader society was generally supportive of mixed marriage. Uh, so these individuals, these families were able to live normal lives within multi-ethnic society. They were surrounded also by positive portrayals of mixed friendship and romance, coming I mean, not just from scholarly articles, from you know, official statements, but also in popular culture. And I just wanna show you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about here. So, for example, this film, uh, The Distant Bride, uh, film, a Turkmen film from Ashgabat uh, uh, movie studio, it's 1948. Um, it's about a Cossack army officer who meets a beautiful female Turkmen horse trainer during World War II, falls in love with her. After the war, comes back to try to find her, uh, and they eventually they eventually uh, get married. You know, all of these films seem to end with wedding bells and, you know, a happy, happy ending. They're a lot like American musical comedies, actually, or American films of, of the period. Um, another very famous film was this one, Spinarde i Pastuch. The official translation is the swineherd and, swineherd and the Shepherd, but that did not sound very good in English. So there actually was an English version of this, and it was called They Met in Moscow, which sounds like <laughs> um, And they did, in fact, meet in Moscow. Uh, they met at an agricultural exhibition. It was um, uh, uh, Glasha, a Russian peasant woman, and Musaib, a Dagestani shepherd from the mountains of the North Caucasus. They met at the agricultural exhibition. They fell in love. But, and as often happens in these films, there was a jealous suitor. There was a third wheel who was a Glasha's fellow, fellow villager, a Russian guy named Kuzma. He tried to sabotage the relationship, but he failed. And in the end, once again, wedding bells, happy ending, uh, and so forth. There are many other examples, I won't go too much into them, but uh, children were also exposed to positive portrayals of ethnic, inter-ethnic uh, relationships. Now, for children, they didn't much so much focus on marriage, uh, it's a little too early for that, but this, this book, Dikai Sabaka Dingo, The Wild Dog Dingo, first a book uh, in 1939, then later became a film. It features a romantic triangle among three children, a Russian girl, Tanya, a boy she's in love with, Kolya, and uh, her best friend from childhood, a boy of the indigenous Nanai nationality named Filka. Um, and Filka's pining away for her, so there's kind of a, a romantic triangle among these young teenagers. Um, in all of, oh, I, there's a scene, there's a scene from the movie, the showing Tanya and Filka. Uh, Filka actually was played by a Kazakh uh, boy, a Kazakh actor. Uh, not by an indigenous Nanai actor. So uh, um, at any rate, in all of these films and books and in many others I could name, inter-ethnic friendship, romance, marriage are portrayed as formal, acceptable, even desirable aspects of Soviet life. Nevertheless, in real life, mixed couples and families were acutely and painfully affected by the growth of ethnic primordialism in the Soviet Union. Their, their experiences were not always happy, even though the official portrayal tended to be you know, the happy, happy mixed families. I, in, in my oral history interviews, I found that former Soviet citizens, people I was interviewing, often understood and spoke of nationality in racialized ways, even though they almost never used the word race. Even members of mixed families who might've been expected to have a more kind of nuanced uh, understanding of identity tended to describe the characteristics of national and ethnic groups as innate and immutable, and to accept the implicit existence of ethnic hierarchies, both within and outside the Soviet Union. One of the uh, uh, most obvious examples of this, which I don't really have time to talk about today, is that you know most people kind of placed African people of African descent, you know, on the bottom of the, the hierarchy. People would say things. I mentioned this in my book, but people would say things like, "I don't mind if my son is a Kazakh or a Russian or whatever, but you know, as long as not an African person." I'm married to a guy from Nigeria. 
And when people first, the first time someone said this to me, I was like, I'm married to an African guy, I kind of popped out and that pretty much put an end to that interview. <laughs> so, so I learned not to, you know, mention my personal, you know, <laughs> personal situation until maybe the end of the, end of the interview. Uh, so uh, there were three main areas um, in which racial ideas, I, new ideas about ethnicity and nationality emerged with particular prominence in my oral history research. One was the discrepancy between official and subjective identity among the offspring of mixed marriages, so the way young people identified. Um, another was the question of names, the bestowing of first names on children in mixed families. And the third is ideas about language, especially use of the Russian language in mixed families. These actually correspond to three chapters in my book, chapters five, six, and seven. Okay, so first to the question of identity. Uh, everyone in the Soviet Union had one of these. This is a, called a passport, but it's really an internal, it's not a passport for external travel, it's really an internal identity document. And when you had one of these, it has your name and date of birth and all that. And then very importantly, it has your, oh, <laughs> sorry, pressed the wrong button. It has your nationality. This guy is Ruski, see, Russian. Um, it could be something else there. No, but yeah, your, your nationality is, uh, is, is put on your, on your passport. Now, uh, mixed children, interestingly, had to go at the age of 16 to get their passports. Well, all children, not just mixed children, but all children, all teenagers had to go at the age of 16 to get their passports. And when they did this, they had to declare what their national, what their nationality was. Now for children from ethnically homogeneous families, this was not an issue, but if you were mixed, it would pose a dilemma. What should I say? <laughs> what should I do? And so this became kind of a fraught issue for, uh, for children in mixed families. Often um, the subjective sense of identity that children felt did not coincide with the nationality they declared for their passport. And I investigate, I, you know, I investigate this a little bit in my book. This problem had a gender dimension um, especially in the case of mixed marriages uniting a Central Asian Muslim man and a Russian or other uh, European woman, uh, because very often in these families, uh, children were expected to take the father's nationality, especially if they were living in a republic like Kazakhstan or Tajikistan. Um, but often they were primarily Russian-speaking and identified more with their mother's culture. So, uh, so this already created kind of a conflict between how they felt internally and what they put on their, you know, in their passport. So let me give an example of uh, one woman I interviewed uh, who I have called Maria Iskanderova. When I have quotation marks, it means it's a pseudonym. So uh, uh, not all the people, but some of the people I interviewed requested to be identified by pseudonyms. She was the child of a Russian mother and an Azerbaijani father living in Kazakhstan. She resembled her father physically. She had his patronymic and last name. Um, and in her childhood, the discrepancy between these external markers of identity and her subjective feelings of identity brought unwelcome comments from strangers. And here I have a quote from, from my interview with her. I really got sick of the attention that was always directed toward me in particular. I look like my father. I don't resemble my mother at all. And so everybody would go, oh, is that your mom? Oh, but you don't look like a Russian. Who's your father and how and what? and so forth. Somehow these questions were not very pleasant, she said. Because she closely resembled her Azerbaijani father, Maria noted resignedly that she did not feel she could declare her nationality to be Russian when she got her passport at the age of 16. Officially, she had every right to declare herself Russian because she was half Russian. But she said that claiming, she believed that claiming this identity would have made her a laughingstock. She actually said, People would think it was a joke if I declared myself Russian. I thought about this, again, quote, and decided that registering Russian nationality in my passport with my external appearance would be ridiculous. Who would believe it? So she was feeling these you know, pressures of, you know, of, uh, she was feeling pressure to declare a certain, certain identity based on how she looks and her name, basically. Similarly, um, Nadia Kim, a mixed Ukrainian-Korean woman, always considered herself more Ukrainian than Korean. She spent a lot of time with her uh, uh, Ukrainian grandmother in Ukraine, she spoke Ukrainian, yet she nevertheless declared her father's Korean nationality for her passport. According to her mother, Nadia hesitated to call herself Ukrainian because of her physical appearance. And here you have a quote from the mother, uh, Galina Kim. I know that Nadia said she's Korean because Nadia said to me, mama, how can I write that I'm Ukrainian when I look like this? What kind of Ukrainian am I? 
When I told her in principle, you can choose. She said, mom, are you kidding me or what? How am I gonna choose? How can I be Ukrainian when I look Korean? No. Uh, another example, Susanna Morozova, um, a mixed Armenian-Ukrainian respondent. Uh, this is her real name. The reason her name is Morozova is because she's married to a Russian guy. That's not her maiden name. A mixed Armenian-Ukrainian respondent. At one point in her childhood, told her mother she felt Russian. And um, her mother said, uh, how can you possibly be Russian? And Susanna said, well, I speak Russian perfectly. I got an A in Russian class. But her mother told her, no, no, that's not enough. You have to know your roots. You have to know where you came from. People like Susanna wanted to understand Russianness as arising out of language and culture, not ethnicity or descent. But she said, because of her Armenian background and appearance, I simply can't bring myself to call myself Russian. I'm Russian speaking. That's how I identify myself. I'm a Russian speaking Métis, a word that means mixed person. I don't feel in myself any one nationality, any strongly expressed nationality. And this is kind of a typical thing I heard from people. I don't feel one nationality. I don't feel a strongly expressed nationality. Susanna, like Maria, perceived being Russian as a matter of descent or blood and not something she was entitled to claim. Now, sometimes these identity problems went beyond simply a mis mismatch between subjective identity and, uh, and official nationality and extended to an actual alienation from the nationality of one of the parents. And Susanna was an example of this. She told me, although she loved her Armenian father, who was a university professor and a very gentle, witty, and warm man, I actually met him, who helped out her mother at home and was the perfect husband, perfect man, perfect father. <laughs> Nevertheless, she was afraid of men from the Caucasus and didn't want to marry one. And she actually, so you can see this in this book here. Um, she says, in general, I was always certain that I would marry a Russian man. I didn't want to marry a Caucasian, a representative of the Caucasus nationality. I was actually kind of afraid of them. Even though my own father was Armenian, if I saw a man of Caucasian nationality on the street, I would cross to the other side. I would, they would even yell something at me in their own language. I was terribly afraid and would try to avoid them. I wanted to be married to a Russian. You can really hear the sounds of alienation in this book. I crossed to the other side of the street. They'd yell something at me in their own language. You know, she doesn't identify with this at all. It's alien to her. Despite her own mixed background, Susanna was expressing highly racialized fears of men from the Caucasus. In an effort to avoid being uh, forced into a single essentialized identity box, some offspring of mixed couples reached for a super ethnic identity, and that was most often Soviet identity. Um, that, that was what was most natural, most authentic for many of the mixed families. And many of them said if they had been able to choose Soviet as their nationality, they would have done so. That was not possible in the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, they told me that they strongly identified both with the idea of a Soviet people and with the notion of the friendship peoples. They were, in fact, the best representatives of this. Um, let's move on to the question of naming, which uh, I, when I wrote the book, when I was researching the book, I didn't realize naming was going to become a big issue, but as I told some of you at lunch, um, it, I, when I looked through my interview transcripts, I suddenly realized, actually, <laughs> for the people I interviewed, this is a really important question. It ended up becoming a, uh, an entire chapter in the book. So considerations of phenotype and identity also entered into discussions of naming mixed children. When bestowing a first name on a child, mixed couples, the big couples I interviewed, placed a high premium on something that I called name matching. This meant, first of all, that your uh, name, patronymic, first name, patronymic, and last name should all match. It also meant that your first name should match how you look, you know? And uh, I found this a little strange because growing up in California, I knew all kinds of people who had like a German first name, a Spanish middle name, you know, Portuguese last name. And it was very common to have these kinds of interesting combinations of names in which people actually express their various identities through the different parts of their names. But everyone I talked to said, no, 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 that's bad. And, you know, in this view, it was very interesting. It was a different ideology of, of, of naming. And it took me a while to understand this. Um, so for example, um, Myra Ahmedova, a Kazakh woman I interviewed who was in a mixed marriage, she explained that it would be very awkward for a child who looked Kazakh to have a classically Russian name like, uh, you know, Dmitry or Anastasia or something. And she said, well, because the kids don't look Russian. They have, so to speak, Kazakh blood, which after all dominates just like African blood. I thought that was a very interesting thing to say. They will look awkward if you name them something like that. Another person I interviewed, a woman named Marina, who was uh, 
mixed Kazakh and Russian and married to a Kazakh man. She tried to carry this out in practice. She tried to name her four daughters based on what they looked like as newborns. Her eldest daughter bore the name Asil, a Kazakh name, um, and Marina recalled, here you see the quote here, we tried to pick a name based on looks. For example, when my oldest daughter was born, she looked more like a Kazakh, and we were offered a list of names. We looked through the directory to find one that would be appropriate, and we settled on this name. She went on to say that her younger daughter was born not looking like a Kazakh, and so they adopted a neutral name, one that could not be, was not strongly ethnically marked, not purely Kazakh, not purely Russian. They named her Aya. Now, the belief in name matching reflects, I think, a unitary view of identity, which everything is supposed to match, external appearance, name, passport, nationality, and language. They're all supposed to be in conformity. That's kind of the ideal, you know, the ideal uh, of nationality. Marina's strategy, or Marina's story, rather, also reflects another common strategy in mixed families. Instead of giving an exclusively Kazakh or exclusively Russian or Tajik uh, name to children, uh, or you know, one associated with a specific religion, either a Christian, you know, historically Christian name or a historically Muslim name, it became common in the later Soviet decades to seek a name that was either neutral or international. Now, what people told me this frequently, and I was kind of like, what does that mean? At first, I thought international meant like. Um, you know, Vladlin or, you know, or, or, or one of those international names from the or Rosa Luxembourg or something. But, yeah. but that's not what they meant. No, they, they meant names that they meant names that could not be strongly identified with a certain, well, with a certain nationality that either worked with multiple nationalities or for, were some were somehow from outside the whole Soviet, you know, nationality framework so no one would identify them. This was to avoid like fighting between you know different parts of the family over whether the child was going to have a you know say a Russian or Kazakh name or a you know a Tajik or an Armenian name or something. Um, so a good example of a neutral name would be the name Timur, which is very common for boys in mixed families in, in, in Central Asia. Timur is a Turkic name that um, has also been common among Russians since World War II. And the reason is because of this book, which also was a film, uh, Timur and his gang, in which uh, a young boy named Timur kind of has a gang of kids in his neighborhood and they all do good deeds. This, so Timur became well known, well known name among Russians for this reason. It's also uh, you know, a name that is you know, understandable to people who, to Turkophone and, and you know, Persephone people. So it became a very common uh, name in mixed families. Um, uh, and I think part of it also is that it's easy to spell and easy to pronounce in multiple languages. It's not a name that is, you know, hard, you know has characters from one language that can't be pronounced to another and so forth. Um, there are other uh, other names that fit this category. For example, the names Rustam and Ruslan were both uh, popular in mixed families. And Ruslan, of course, in addition to being a Turkic name originally, also comes from the word lion. Uh, it, it it also is, has you know Russian literary associations, Pushkin, uh, obviously. So, okay, names. Finally, oh, let's not go there yet. Uh, finally, let me turn to the question of language use in mixed families. Most of the intermarried couples I interviewed um, wanted their children to speak perfect Russian. That was much more important to them than that their children spoke perfectly the local language. Um, and most of them spoke exclusively Russian at home with their children. There were exceptions to this, which I do talk about in my book, but I would say this was, uh, this was the dominant tendency. Interestingly, it was in mixed Central Asian Russian families, it was often the Central Asian fathers who insisted on Russian, who insisted on their children speaking Russian well and sent their children to Russian schools, perhaps partly because they knew from personal experience how important Russian was for success in Soviet society. But for children who did not, quote, look Russian, end quote, speaking perfect Russian could in itself be a problem. It could provoke a surprised reaction from others, or it could pose identity dilemmas for, for the speaker. Um, so uh, a man I interviewed named, uh, pseudonym, he took was Ruslan. Uh, he was son of a mixed Ukrainian and Russian mother and a Kazakh father. He recalled that his parents always spoke only Russian at home, and uh, he asked them why when he got a little older, and his father said, um, we were afraid if we didn't speak only Russian with you at home that you would speak Russian with an accent, or an accent. It was very important for families to, for their, you know, for, for their children not to speak Russian with a foreign accent, because somehow even a functional or even an excellent knowledge of Russian was not enough. They wanted their children to speak it perfectly without an accent so that they could be insiders in Soviet society to sort of guarantee their success 
by being perceived as Russian native speakers, rather than as Central Asians who learned Russian as a second language. And yet, if they had the wrong phenotype, they might not be perceived as native speakers, no matter how perfect their Russian skills. And one person I interviewed, uh, a couple of people I've interviewed mentioned this issue. Um, one was uh, Maria Iskanderova, the mixed Azeri Russian woman I mentioned a moment ago. I, I think I mentioned she has a she had an Azerbaijani name. She looked, you know, uh, like she was from the Caucasus, not like a Russian. And she frequently encountered the assumption, based on her appearance, that she would speak broken or accented Russian. And you can, as she says, you know, in this photo from our interview, my brother had it easy. He looked like both our dad and our mom. He's a little dark, of course, but he has blue eyes. Um, he, and he looked more like a Russian. But there, uh, so people didn't react with the same curiosity to him as they did to me. Like I would start speaking and, oh, you speak without an accent. What nationality are you? Well, for goodness sake, why should I speak the next? She considered herself, she internally, she identified most with being Russian, the culture of her mother. So she found this quite offensive. Um, a perfect knowledge of Russian, normally a source of pride, could also be a source of shame in certain circumstances. Many of my ethnically mixed respondents expressed deep regret about having failed to learn their father's language, be it Kazakh, Tatar, Tajik, or Azerbaijani, even though in most cases, the fathers had made little, if any, effort to expose them to the language. Moreover, it was common knowledge that speaking Russian perfectly did not make you a Russian. One of my respondents, a woman named Sultanat, Kazakh woman married to a Russian man, um, recalled an incident on a train when she was traveling with her sister as a teenager. This was back in the day when on Soviet trains, you, shared, you had a four bed compartment and you could share it with any random people. So my friend and her sister were bunking with two male military officers in the uh, compartment. And uh, when the girls stepped out of the compartment, they were teenagers at the time, when they stepped out of the compartment to let the men change into their PJs, uh, they overheard the officers speaking among themselves. The younger man said, they speak Russian so well, I wonder where they're from. The older officer, the colonel said, they could only be from Kazakhstan. Only Kazakhs speak Russian so well and without an accent. <laughs> Sultanat was shocked by these words because it had never occurred to her to think it strange that she spoke perfect Russian without an accent. It was her native language. And as she said, I will remember this observation for the rest of my life. It was shocking for me. Even though we Kazakhs have Asian facial, facial features, we speak Russian clearly with no accent whatsoever. Well, let me tell you, my education starting from kindergarten, school, university, all of it was in Russian language. Of course I speak Russian without an accent. If I speak on the phone, no one would ever know that I was Kazakh. I explained myself in proper and literary Russian. Sultanat was upset, not only at being taken as a foreigner whose Russian language skills were surprising to the Russian officers, but also at the implication somehow that Kazakhs were a nationality that had betrayed their true identity by exchanging their native language for Russian. This implied a kind of fakery or inauthenticity. Um, the problem with being Kazakh and speaking perfect Russian was that one would never be mistaken for an ethnic Russian or fully accepted as such. Okay, that's uh, uh, so. Uh, that's all I want to say about language uh, for now. Um, in this talk, I have tried to show the ways in which racial thinking in the late Soviet period insinuated itself into everyday conversations and decisions about issues as varied as naming children choosing what identity you want to put on your passport and which language to speak at home in, you know, among the family. Examples from the life histories of members of mixed families in Central Asia show the extent to which national culture in the Soviet Union and the late Soviet Union had come to be seen as something innate, biological, and immutable. In this worldview, an individual's cultural identity was no longer malleable, learned, or even a matter of choice as Soviet scholars and officials had insisted it was, say, in the 1920s. Even if nationality had not exactly become race, Soviet thinking about nationality had become racialized. Now, it's important to stress that this racialization of nationality, while widespread in scholarly and popular discourse, was not formally institutionalized in the Soviet Union. You know, the Soviet Union did not you know, sort of people into racial categories. It wasn't South Africa, it wasn't the United States. This, this, this racialization was more kind of implicit rather than, than explicit. In this sense, the Soviet Union genuinely was different from its Cold War rivals. Moreover, this kind of exclusivist and racialized thinking about nationality always coincided or coexisted with 
the internationalist thinking that I talked about at the beginning of the talk. People still believed in friendship peoples, you know, in the emergence of a single Soviet people. Uh, so these two paradigms, I guess, coexisted and kind of conflicted with each other throughout most of the, the late Soviet era. And you can really see this, this tension between the two paradigms working itself out in the life experiences of these mixed families. I want to say a few words about what happened after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, so after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, the contacts for ethnic mixing changed significantly. Um, communist ideology, as you know, was rejected. Uh, national identities were promoted in each of the individual republics that emerged out of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Kazakhstan was now an independent country and experienced a surge of ethnic Kazakh consciousness. Even as the post-Soviet government in Kazakhstan tried to ensure peaceful coexistence of its many different peoples, Kazakhstan had a population that was almost as multi-ethnic as the Soviet Union as a whole. Independent Tajikistan um, experienced even more dramatic changes. There was a brutal civil war fought in the 1990s that led to the flight of much of the non-Tajik population, mainly Russians and other Russian speakers. In both countries, a new emphasis on what people call traditionalism sometimes in marriage and family relations as part of this national revival made it harder to marry across ethnic lines. This was especially the case in Tajikistan, where the custom of arranged marriage uh, is still very important. Marriages are arranged uh, often between cousins or between close friends and family members. Uh, young people don't often have, you know, don't often get to choose who they marry. And this, of course, makes makes mixed marriage um, more difficult. In both Kazakhstan and Tajikistan, internal divisions such as sub-ethnic identities, regional differences, and rural-urban differences have become more salient in the post-Soviet period. Moreover, in both countries, Soviet citizens, sorry, former Soviet citizens, now intermarry not just with other former Soviet nationalities, which used to be the case in the Soviet Union, but they marry with people from all over the globe. Um, and I can show you a few images. There was actually a, there was a, a, a website, an article you know, on a Kazakh website that had a number of images of, of, of uh, modern day mixed marriages. Here you have, uh, these are kind of, the kind of mixed marriages you would have also seen in the Soviet era, Russian Kazakh couple and a Kazakh Tatar couple. I thought it was cute the way that they were holding their flags. Uh, but you also have marriages you would not have seen in the Soviet period, Kazakh Canadian, or not very, not very often, Kazakh Italian, Korean Macedonian mixed couples. Um, so let me just go back to this slide for a moment. Kazakhstan and Tajikistan have diverged significantly in their post-Soviet orientations. Tajikistan has been strongly ethno-nationalist, while Kazakhstan has seen a concerted effort to downplay um, uh, ethnic nationalism and create a civic identity called Kazakhstani, with which all citizens can identify. The Kazakhstani state has continued a kind of um, Soviet-style celebration of ethnic diversity, has tried to say positive things about mixed marriage and so forth, while Tajikistan has You've seen government officials and others make very negative statements about intermarriage and has even seen some efforts to prevent people from prevent people, Tajik citizens from marrying foreigners, for example. Um, these differing paths represent the two contradictory ideological tendencies I described, described here, each rooted in the Soviet era. On the one hand, the celebration of multi-ethnicity, and on the other hand, the entrenchment of, of uh, an increasingly primordial view of the nation. Even in Kazakhstan, which is, you know, which has tried to be more welcoming of intermarriage. There are, is still opposition to mixed marriage. There are nationalist uh, writings in Kazakh language newspapers uh, and statements by, you know, parliamentarians and so forth that are quite negative about mixed marriage. For example, uh, one article I cited in my book, uh, published in 2018 in a Kazakh language newspaper, the title was "Why Is Mixed Marriage Dangerous?" I think that tells you what you need to know about the article. But basically, <laughs> this Kazakh commentator argued that you know mixed marriage was promoted by the Soviets as a way to forcibly assimilate small nations. So this is a new take on the you know brotherhood of friendship of nations paradigm, right? Um, a normal person, the author argued, cannot love another per a person of a different nationality. So that's a pretty strong statement. Positive portrayals of mixed couples and families in the media have aroused opposition. You often see advertisements and so forth with uh, mixed people. Some parts of Kazakh society have been critical of these. Uh, let me just show you. So this one, for example, this is a billboard that uh, shows a uh, 
uh, what it looks like, I mean, they're not identified, but it looks like a Kazakh man and a woman who might be Russian, um, you know, kind of they're showing the modern life with like cell phones, credit cards, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're in a bar with a jukebox. Uh, so, you know, kind of positive portrayal. This is an ad for a bank, I think, you know, that's why there's a, a credit card. I saw, I, I took this photo in, in Almaty a few years ago. Um, um, but also, uh, if it, when Kazakh women marry non-Kazakh men, the attitude is even more negative. And there was a film a few years ago called Irony of Love that, uh, that inspired a lot of negative commentary um, because it portrayed a Kazakh woman who dumped her wealthy Kazakh boyfriend to marry a poor Russian academic. <laughs> so, so, you know, a lot of people said not only is this totally unrealistic, but uh, but uh, also it's an insult, you know, to uh, you know to nationhood. Uh, and um, uh, you know, there really was, there really were negative, you know, negative comments about <laughs> negative comments about this film. And uh, some parliamentary deputies demanded that Kazakhstan stop fun funding films, you know, of this of this kind. So even Kazakhstan, the picture is mixed. In Tajikistan, uh, there's been even more overt hostility toward mixed marriages, both on the state and the popular level. Um, uh, uh, and because of Tajikistan's recent history of civil war and violence, members of mixed families who are still living there express not only kind of feeling a little bit unwelcome, but actually express fears for their personal safety. Sometimes they fear if there's any outbreak of violence that they'll be they'll be uh, they'll be the victims. So to conclude, I'd just like to uh, say a few words about the intermarried couples in the Soviet Union believed in a future for their children that would, uh, in which their children would be able to transcend ethnicity. They believed that this friendship of peoples would eventually lead, or many of them did, would eventually lead to, you know, kind of true multi-ethnic society, of uh, the formation of Soviet people, and so forth. Unfortunately, this future never arrived for the mixed children of Soviet Central Asia who live today in post-Soviet states that for the most part are dominated by ethnic nationalists and generally much less hospitable to ethnic mixing than their Soviet parents and grandparents could have ever imagined. The growth of biological and racial understandings of identity in the late Soviet period has contributed significantly to this situation. Um, when I began this project, I was intrigued by the fact that the Soviet Union throughout most of the 20th century was pro-mixed marriage at a time when you know, many other countries, many other countries, uh, mixed marriage was very, very much frowned upon or accepted only grudgingly. Was the Soviet Union's internationalism and apparent toleration of diversity and ethnic mixing real, or was it just rhetorical in, you know, Soviet kind of official Soviet accounts? Uh, did the experiences of mixed families really correspond to the happy reality portrayed in the kind of films and books that I've talked about here? Um, I think. The reality I have found did, to some extent, correspond to the ideal. Mixed couples and uh, children of mixed marriages felt more comfortable in the Soviet Union uh, than in many other parts of the world, and they identified broadly with this ideology of internationalism. Yet today, as I've shown, some of the post-Soviet countries are seemingly going backward, abandoning anti-racism in favor of exclusionary nationalism. Mixed families and even um, members of ethnic minorities no longer feel as secure or welcome as they did in the Soviet era. History is not linear, and progress toward equality and inclusiveness is never guaranteed. In the multi-ethnic multi countries of a globalized world, the collapse of Soviet identity in favor of primordial nationalism may serve as a cautionary tale to us all. Thank you very much.